Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Robert Augustus Masters. And you'll notice that there's three of me today, um, and that's because my friends here, Fax and Sharon Gilbert, are somewhat uh, expert in the work of Robert Augustus Masters, having led a, uh, a book discussion group here in Fairfield, Iowa, on his book, Spiritual Bypassing, When Spirituality Disconnects Us from what really matters. And uh, it's funny because I thought about the three of us sitting here and it kind of reminded me of the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil monkeys. <laughs> and that kind of segues nicely with the title of your book, you know, <laughs> and the, the theme of it. Um, so, Robert, um, perhaps you could just start by giving, you a, giving us a brief sketch of your credentials, you know, what your professional and spiritual background backgrounds are. And... Um, how you came to write this book and what you mean by spiritual bypassing. Well, I've, I've been working on myself since the 70s. I began working as a psychotherapist in 78, combining body work, gestalt, psychotherapy techniques, uh, dream work in a very intuitive, eclectic manner. It became more and more integrative as the time went on. So I've been doing the work for 33 years. And along the way, of course, I've, I've seen many, many... Uh, signs of spiritual bypass, which I did not name as such when I was much younger because I was doing it. You were bypassing yourself. When you're in it. Like I was yeah. very ambitious spiritually when I was younger. I really wanted to get to the big E and, you know, sit all night and strain and uh, <laughs> made uh, had all kinds of amazing state experiences, which kind of made my spiritual resume very thick, which had a real downside, as I discovered later. Um, but I, I learned in my 40s, right to my core, that I was not going to get away from certain things in myself that I was hoping to transcend or dissolve or get past. So I made a huge shift, which was to relating to them instead of from them. So I became intimate, more and more intimate with all these qualities that constitute what, what I call me, high and low, dark and light, dying and undying. I worked with all of it. And along the way, I saw more and more people using their spirituality to get away from things that seem very, very real to me when I looked at their uh, lack of development in certain areas. Instead of, for example, doing some high-quality psychotherapy on certain issues, they'd meditate more deeply. They'd do more chanting. They'd become more uh, obedient to the guru's teachings. And, and, there was a, and they would get stuck. Then they would blame themselves for being stuck, never um, faulting a teacher or the teachings to any significant depth, but driving themselves into deeper and deeper layers of shame through this. And I saw this more and more. And then a few years ago, a friend of mine said, you know, you've written a number of pieces on spiritual bypassing. There's no book on it. Why don't you put them together? So I did that. And I was so happy to uh, put it all together. And did it you wasn't coin just... the term spiritual bypassing? No, John Wellwood coined it in 1984. Okay. Um, and I was going to call my book The Many Faces of Spiritual Bypassing, but the publisher had the last say in the title. Because spiritual bypassing has all kinds of permutations. It can appear in our sexuality, our, our relationships, our, our emotional difficulties, uh, and what I call blind compassion. There's so many areas where it, it enters into, and I've seen how pervasive it is. Wherever you see places where there's a lot of spirituality, like where you guys are, or in Ashland, Boulder, Hawaii, California, there's a huge amount of spiritual bypassing, usually not named as such. Do you think, what do you think that, if you had to distill it down to the ultimate core reason why people 
bypass spiritually, what would you say it is? Uh, avoidance of pain. Huh. To put it very simply, there, you know, if you want the treasure, you have to face the dragon. We all know that in many levels, but there's such a temptation when things are painful, difficult, to find something that eases us, helps us rise above it. It could be pharmaceutical, it could be sexual, it could be meditative. But it, what we're doing is getting away from something that is calling to us. And the irony is when you go toward your pain, enter it consciously, step by step, you'll find a very deep healing. And out of that, often as a byproduct, there'll be profound spiritual openings. We just did a group for the past week here with a dozen people. Deep, deep psychotherapy, very primal work. But there was a lot of breakthrough moments where spirituality just was in the room, so thick and so real. It emerged from the work people, did not because of some meditative technique. By going to the core of our pain, to where it's not so much pain anymore, it's just intense, difficult sensation, and not just discharging it, but actually working with it. I'll explain that later, what I mean by that. Um, The opening was profound. And if I'd had these people who just trusted me the last week to work with them, doing spiritual techniques when they were in agony, recalling certain things, or they were really upset, I'd be doing them a disservice. And I could have done, done something very sweet, done some loving kindness practice, but I found it more loving in a very fierce sense to, to skillfully help them go to the core of what was troubling them. And the more they did that, the safer they felt, the more at home they felt. And well, that was a funny blip on the screen. I just got distracted because you just moved sideways faster than a human can move. Huh. Well, we're kind of special okay. here right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> lateral, lateral levitation. Yeah. Uh, sort of like Spider-Man or something. How, yeah. how is it possible uh, by going into our, our personal stuff, the, the stuff that we fear, the stuff that we kind of subliminally avoid, the stuff yeah. that we might meditate a lot to get away from, how is, how is it, what's the mechanism that allows for greater ownership of who we are just by going into those limitations? Well, it depends how you go into them. If someone goes into them too quickly, they may just get overwhelmed and it may be a, a negative experience. But if you go into it skillfully, ideally with really good help, you become more intimate with the qualities of it. So say you have a, a, an issue with, say, anger from childhood that still tends to infect your current relationships. I wouldn't just have you blow off some steam or teach you how to repress anger. I'd want to know – I'd want to help you connect the dots. And that means getting intimate with your history with that emotion – family dynamics, and and also cultivating enough spiritual focus so you can keep the whole thing in perspective. That's the value of spirituality is essential to this work, but it's not enough. You, in psychotherapy, that's only psychological or emotionally based is not enough either because we, we can get stuck in our personal stuff and the personal becomes overly important. And in my work, I, to say it in a very short form, I'd say the work is to honor the personal the imper- not imp- the personal, the interpersonal, and the transpersonal equally. In other words, the personal, the relational, and the spiritual. Honor them all. And see, implicit in that is an integral approach, an integrative approach, where you have to work with shadow, body, mind, spirituality, social factors, mm-hmm. collective factors. It's all there. And I find most people find, know this intuitively, that everything has to be taken into account. Otherwise, we become lopsided in our development. So that by using the psychotherapeutic methods that you have, yeah. uh, some space is created uh, around whatever it is that's, that's feared or, or avoided. 
And in that space, this greater uh, relaxation into an identity with who we are as consciousness? No, it's not that simple. It, it, see, that's part of it is to have enough space around it. But if most people put too much space between them and what's happening. If something's very painful, we want to keep a real distance from it. And the further away we are from something, the less data we will pick up from it. So when I'm doing very deep work with a client who's really having a hellish time, I get very close to what's going on. I'm empathetic. I pick up, I pick up all kinds of signals because I'm in very close, but I keep enough distance so I can keep my focus. So it's the same as if you have a child and the child's very hurt. Your heart goes out to your child who's really hurting badly. But you also remain capable of calling 911, doing first aid. So it's an art. When we go into our own painful areas, we want to proceed at a pace that works for us. Some people try and go there too fast. They're so ambitious to, to get through it. And they end up getting burnt by the fire, so to speak, and not warmed by it and illumined by it and lightened by it. So it's a, it's, a, and it's a journey that's unique to each person. So it's not like I have a set formula. When I work, I work intuitively the whole time. If you watch me do a group, work with a group, there's no set plan, but the structure emerges organically as people open up. And I often say to them, I am leading, but in, in effect, what's really happening, I'm being led by what I'm picking up. And I'm also being guided by the group's intuition. So it's a very organic process. And I wouldn't just call it psychotherapy. It's, it's, it's much more than that. But it does involve taking that kind of heroic journey into one's underground, one's the difficult areas, and not just settling for oneness. I, I've said recently in a Facebook, I put, don't settle for oneness. Go for intimacy. Go for intimacy. Go for intimacy. Yes. Oneness is a given. Of course it's, of course it's all one. But that's the beginning to me of spiritual life and awakened life, not the end result. And what comes after that is very interesting. What do you do with what surfaces? What do you do when you've had a profound spiritual opening and you still are being reactive with your husband or wife? And you don't want to admit it because you've got some spiritual pride. You know, it happens. It's a very humbling process. And we emphasize relationship a lot in our work because in a good relationship, everything that's neurotic about you will be brought to the surface, which is both heaven and hell. But once it's brought to the surface, you can work with it. Of course, I, I, you probably agree that it's sort of human and instinctual to want to avoid pain. I mean, you know, we, we naturally recoil from it. But I, as I understand you, what you're saying is if you manage to sort of use spirituality as a sort of drug to uh, blot it out or, or, you know, sidestep it without really resolving it, then you're not really, it's just still going to be lingering down there in the basement. It's and, still there. Yeah. yeah. And it's still going to, hobnob you at some point, it's, it's still hamstring you at some point, it's going to come up and trip you, and what you really need to, and you're not suggesting that people sort of go into their pain and wallow there indefinitely, I, I sense that you're saying there will, if you, if you approach this properly, there will be a resolution, and whatever it is that it's causing the pain can eventually be genuinely eliminated rather than suppressed. Yeah, first step is to, is to be aware of it. And second step is to name it. We, for example, we all have an inner critic, and many people are tortured by their inner critic. And once you name it, say you might call it, some people might call it dad, or there's all kinds of names, whatever it is, then you're relating to it. Then you can see that it's a quality of mind that you don't have to identify with. And once you cease identifying with it, you, can, you see its roots more clearly, you see where it came from, 
And you realize that it will always occupy a place in your psyche, but it doesn't have to be in the front row or, on the, or running the show. It can be in the back bleachers of your mind or in the outbacks of your mind. But that begins with actually naming it for what it is. Once you've named something that's very difficult and painful, then you can move toward it. That means taking your attention step by conscious step into it, which is an inherently emotional journey. It means you probably will feel deep sorrow. You may grieve. You may rage. You may feel great shame. You may feel great joy and exaltation all at the same time sometimes. So it's an it's like birth. It's an inherently messy process, but something beautiful <laughs> emerges. It's not there's no paint by numbers. I don't trust any paint by numbers approaches. Here's the five steps to this, or the seven steps to that. I think our journeys are much more circuitous and and uh, winding than than we would like to have them be, at least in our minds. Yeah, the minds for sure. Uh, for Jonathan Livingston Siegel, that book came out a while ago was transcend, yeah. purify, glorious. Why do you think that just transcendence by itself wouldn't be uh, transformative enough to enable us to uh, recognize in the totality of who we are, not just who we are? You know what? Real, real transcendence is transformative, but most of what's called transcendence, in my view, is premature or false transcendence. Is people using methodologies that can help them lift out of themselves, so to speak, before they're ready, before they've gotten grounded, before they've embodied their humanity. And I've, I sometimes say intimacy transcends transcendence. I mean, there's a when we get intimate with, with what we are, we're more whole. And I think the deepest spiritual path is to be intimate with everything. It doesn't mean you have to become it. But you see, you develop such a compassion through that because you touch, see everyone's agony, pain, suffering, joys, and you're not removed from it from a safe distance. You're actually in close where your heart can be wounded. I think the more advanced we are spiritually, the more sensitive we are emotionally. We don't, just like we see anger, for example, is present at every level of development. I mean, Jesus got royally pissed off. All kinds of teachers have, and sometimes not for better or for worse. But it doesn't, emotions don't go away as we evolve. In other words, we, we, we're not here to meet, to transcend our humanity. We're to live it fully. Yeah. Sharon, did you want to say anything? No, I was, I was actually going to ask um, along these lines. Uh, Fax has been reading uh, another book of yours, Darkness Shining, shining wild. wild. Darkness Shining Wild. And uh, he's told me a little about that, um, your journey. Um, some years ago, um, where you had experienced um, these dark regions of the psyche and so on. And I, I wonder if that's, that really um, fed a lot into your understanding of, when I say understanding, I don't mean intellectual understanding, but your, your cognition of the wholeness of life as so inclusive of, yes. of paradox. Yeah. I, I would never have chosen that experience or wished it on anybody. It was pure hell. But I, be, I was forced to become profoundly intimate with not just everyday fear, but pure terror, transpersonal terror. And I had no escape from it. I wanted an escape. I already was an advanced meditator, tons of work on myself. I had all the tools, and I almost didn't make it. It was so, I've, you know, I'd had seizures. I was uh, pretty messed up. And... I knew it, and I knew there was no escape from it. So I was forced to stay with it. But gradually, 
I found myself sometimes sitting all night in terror, and I began to develop a compassion for the, the terrified me, even though it wasn't even a me. It just was pure terror. And, I, and my skill in working with people at a very deep level intensified, so I became extremely capable of working with uh, very dark states. And I had more and more people sent to me from the spiritual emergency networks throughout Canada and the United States who had psychotic breaks that had spiritual features. I felt very home with that. Mm-hmm. So I, I was kept in that state of uh, terror and hell for almost nine months. When I emerged, I could not return to who I'd been before, which was the, which was the fierce grace of it. It was ter- totally fierce grace. And I uh, felt like a different person. I was humbled. An mm-hmm. arrogance I'd had before had gone spiritually. I was, I'd led many people. I was quite well-known at that time for spiritual reasons. And I felt myself happily embracing anonymity. I felt my humbledness. And the work I did changed. And I thought, well, what an incredible gift. But what it took was astonishing. And I called, it, I called it darkness shining well because it was, it was absolute darkness, but it was, but it was shining. And it was totally wild. There was no sense of meaning. I could not attribute meaning to anything. My sense of familiarity had, was shed completely for a while. So I was naked as a newborn in a way, but I also had a lot of my adult faculty still on tap. It was a very unusual time. What forced you into that or, or precipitated that? I, I had um, taken a few psychedelics in the 70s, great experiences, and then they, I went into deep, deep meditation to access the same states without med- uh, psychedelics. 1993, someone gave me some ayahuasca. Oh. I took it. I, I had a gigantic dose of it. it was, very powerful, but I, I was back to the old me in a day or two. Then I found out that within ayahuasca, the most powerful ingredient was called dimethyltryptamine, which is a drug that's produced by the pineal gland. And I heard it had a cousin called 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine, 5-MeO is called, which is still legal, which is amazing, which is even stronger. It's the strongest probably psychedelic on the earth, and it's not very popular because it's, it can be very frightening. So some students of mine told me about it. said, you can just take it between sessions. Huh. It lasts 10 minutes. I took it, and I almost died. I, I, I was completely unconscious physically. I was completely aware of myself. I was about to die. Didn't breathe for two or three minutes a couple times in a row. I almost did die and um, scared the hell out of everyone around me and myself. And I thought I'd be fine in a couple days. I wasn't. I was shaking like a leaf. I couldn't resurrect my old self. I couldn't sleep. It was an enormous turning point. And of course, at this point, I'm very grateful for the experience. But at the time, it was it was unrelentingly hellish for a while. It's interesting. There's a theme in many of the people I've interviewed where they've gone through a, a really intense fear phase for you know for in different ways for different reasons you know yeah. different causes and so on apparently. But they come out the other side of it in a very sort of profound unitive state. And uh, there's a verse in the Upanishads which says, certainly all fear is born of duality. And it almost seems like, like passing through that membrane of fear, you, you arrive at a point where, you, you know, you've, you've kind of reached a, a more unified uh, level of things, which is not to say that you can't continue to explore and embrace. And, you know, fear, fear can be present in a non-dual state too, but what, uh-huh. what, what the key here. What I've taught people is to adopt a non-problematic orientation toward fear. The arising of fear does not mean there's a problem. It just means here's fear. I often say to people, fear is excitement and drag. When you expand the container, 
the fear mutates into excitement, life energy, for better or for worse, anger, joy, sexuality. And I think we tend to see the rising of fear as a problematic thing. Let's, we gotta, we got to medicate it. we got to rise above it. Let's try and get rid of it maybe through a, a sexual means. There's such a reluctance to stay with it. And when we do, we tend to encounter a very young part of ourselves, like we call a little boy or little girl in us, that is frightened. And instead of pushing that away or being embarrassed that we have a part of ourselves that's vulnerable and scared and insecure, we bring that part of ourselves into our heart protectively. And then we move forward as a full adult, but we are in touch with our childlike side, our vulnerability, our tenderness. And that often shows up as fear in our system. And I think when we explore fear, we find enormous gifts in it, enormous gifts. And, and if I sit with fear, I'm pretty used to it now, it mutates very quickly. I don't mind it. I almost welcome it in a way because oh, it's, just, it's, just, it's like an old friend, uh, somewhat unwelcome guest at times, but it's not a problem. How do you sit with your fear? I, 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 first of all, I, I sit with it, not on it. Many of us who think we're sitting with an emotion, we're actually on it. We're, we're suppressing our anger, fear, shame. By sitting with it, I hold it close, and I, I notice the sensations in my body, the quality of mind it, it generates, and I just watch it move. Other times, I'll, I'll do something more overt. If, I'm, if I have to do something quickly, I'll do a workout, and I'll feel it move through my system very quickly. But I'm not trying to get rid of it. When I was younger, I was motivated to get rid of it. And I didn't know it very well. I didn't know my anger very well or my shame. Now I have uh, a lot of emotional literacy, and we're teaching that to a lot of people now, how to know our emotions inside out. Mm. One emotion we touched on earlier indirectly was shame. So if you're, say, with a spiritual teacher and you're not where you think you should be and the teacher agrees with you, he may inadvertently or perhaps deliberately sometimes use shame to try and put you in your place, to try and propel you into greater efforts. But what I've seen at backfires if we use shame as, a, as a, an opening tool to try and get people to open up more. Yeah, shame is a, is a pretty deep uh, emotion. Pretty deep. Yeah. And, and in my experience, it, it provides a lot of opening and intimacy and poignancy when you get to it. But getting to it is... Well, here's the trick. If you want to get to shame, you have to keep your peripheral vision really wide because shame mutates into other states very quickly. So say if if one of us was ashamed right now, even in a subtle way, we would probably either get a little aggressive with another person nearby or with ourselves, or we'd dissociate, we'd withdraw, we might, get, we might shut down, we might pull out of the room. In other words, we want to get away from shame because it's a very unpleasant feeling. There's a sense of wanting to dig a hole in the ground and disappear, like being caught in public with your clothes off all of a sudden. Right. And no one likes shame. But the thing is, if you stay with it just for a few seconds, then you feel your conscience is kind of activated. You may make amends if, say, you've hurt someone close to you, say you're sorry, and the shame moves through your system quickly. But when we don't honor it and work with it skillfully, it often mutates into the states I mentioned plus guilt. I think that when you mix shame and fear, you get a toxic state called guilt that emerges from it. Isn't it? It's a kind of death, isn't it, shame? It seems like it's a kind of, uh, it's a part of us we don't really want to work at well, because it's almost yeah. like you have to die to get to it. Well, hence the word mortifying, mm. you know, right. yeah. more French for you. Huh. So it, it is mortifying and there's a type of shame that is toxic. 
there are people who are, are ashamed in a way that doesn't serve their well-being at all. It just crushes them. They grow up and they're carrying it around. It's hellish. But it's not the shame's fault, so to speak. It's more like, what have we done with our shame? We tended to bury it. And I, I, when a lot of men, for example, feel shame, it's for women too, but more for men. I've seen it in men's groups a lot. They turn the shame into aggression very quickly. They'll find fault with the person that is maybe criticizing them very quickly. I've seen many women do something that's the opposite, which is to find fault with themselves, to take that and turn it back on themselves. But neither of those cases has to happen if we see shame for what it is. And that doesn't happen if we don't value our emotional life. If we devalue emotion and think it's kind of a lower level of us compared to what we are spiritually, we won't get to know our emotions very well. And I think that emotion implicates us as a totality. That means it involves physiology, it's feeling, cognition, social factors, even spirituality. It involves all of it. So if you study an emotion in great depth, you end up studying more than emotion. You study Many things, including the very sense of, of a self that has the emotion. It gets very subtle. So when you're doing your work with somebody, you're, you're creating a safe space where they feel comfortable in, in just bringing up whatever's there. They and feel comfortable. It's not like you sit down and say, well, today we're going to work on shame or today we're going to work on No, this. it's organic. It's very organic. organic. So, so like our last group we did, maybe after people introduced themselves, someone's really upset, I have them come in the middle of the room. And within 15 minutes, they've opened up deeply, moved some emotions, had a lot of insight, and they look different. People see that. They feel safer. And within an hour or two of every time we do a group, there's a sense of community. It's like sacred community. Within that circle, people feel an incredible trust to go very, very deep. It's not just because of, of me and Diane. It's also because the people in the groups, we um, inter- I interview everyone who comes. I give them sessions on the phone or in person beforehand. So we make sure everyone is capable of the intensity that can happen in a deep group. But after a while, it feels very safe. Everyone's safe to take their masks off, to be who they are, to, to be emotional, to come forward with a, maybe an upsetting dream, knowing that even though it's kind of scary to bring forward, it will be worked through. There's a sense that every situation is workable. That's a wonderful thing when we get in our heart of hearts, that every situation is workable. Right, right. Yeah, we've, we've, uh, Sharon and I are also teachers in the Waking Down work, and we have group, we lead groups uh, called sittings, and it's a very similar process. We're not trained in, in, in any, probably any of the ways that you've been trained in, but there's a, there's a collective process that when people get to trust each other, and there's no particular goal that's tried to, to be uh, formulated, that, that things just sort of arise uh, on their own, just the way you were saying yeah, we feel a strong spiritual resonance with Samuel and Linda. We know them. Well, they and were I've, the ones that recommended your book in the past. Yeah, and we've had Waking Down teachers come and do psychotherapy with us, so mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of crossover. Yes, right. Yeah. We're in uh, Fairfield, Iowa, as you know, and um, a lot of people here practice Transcendental Meditation and have been doing that for decades. And my shows are actually played on the local public access TV oh, station, so yeah. people may be seeing them. There are a couple of... Uh, sort of uh, aphorisms that were popular in the TM movement. One was, that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. And so, you know, the, the uh, emphasis was always, don't put your attention on anything negative. You're just going to reinforce it and make it stronger. And then the second principle was that 
you know, water the root to enjoy the fruit. In other words, if you transcend, then there's this automatic enrichment and nourishment and healing of all the more all the manifest aspects of life, and uh, so you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. And you know, in fact, if people wanted to go to some kind of therapist or whatnot, they were often debarred from going on courses and all. I've that heard stuff. that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but you know, after decades of adhering to those teachings, many people began to think, well, you know, things haven't really quite worked themselves out <laughs> as much as I would <laughs> like, and maybe I ought to look into this or look into that, you know, and, and see if it could help me. Yeah, exactly. There's such a desire to have our our method for getting away from pain be absolutely successful. It's like this fantasy we carry around of it is possible to have that, but take anyone who's claiming to achieve that and put them in a relationship and you certainly see things shift very quickly. I remember Pema Chobrin saying, uh, you know, famous Buddhist teacher, she spent a while, a while ago she spent a weekend with one of her grandkids and she realized very quickly she was not nearly as far along as she thought. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to achieve certain states when we're in, in the meditation hall or we're just doing a mantra, but when you're in a relationship and your reactivity kicks in big time, that's the real test. Can you then apply your spiritual eye to that and step into what you're doing that's so reactive and stop it? Usually not. It takes a lot of practice. It takes courage, too. And yet, if we don't wake up in the midst of it, our relationships are doomed to be quite shallow. And I I see, um, I'm jumping around here a little bit, I see relationship, intimate relationship, as the ashram of the 21st century. Here's the opportunity to finally use intimate relationship as a means of awakening. It's not like a lesser undertaking, like here's the householder and then here's the person going off into the jungle to reach enlightenment. No, now we have the opportunity to go very, very deep through relationship. And that's what uh, I'm living with my wife, Diane, who I'm extremely close with. And I have a book about uh, relationship called Transformation Through Intimacy that's coming out mm-hmm. in revised edition next year. Mm-hmm. Um, I honor people like Sanya and Linda who are doing really deep, intimate relationship as a path. It's very honorable. It's mm-hmm. very difficult in many ways. But to me, it's absolutely worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reading. Uh, I've just started reading Transformation Through Intimacy yeah. on my Kindle. But I, I'm going to buy the book so both of us can read it. Uh, we got such value out of reading Spiritual Bypassing. And, and it seems like uh, what I've read of your newsletter and also the, the books that I've looked into, um, there's always this, I would say, um, the core teaching that I picked up from um, these different sources is a turning toward that which is uncomfortable. That exactly. if you're uncomfortable, that doesn't mean something's wrong. It's just something to become more intimate with. Well put. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a wonderful thing to do. And, and if you can have a partner you can do that with, what a lovely thing. Like I've often said to our groups that the most depth and growth from me I've had in my life has been the last five or six years with Diane. We have a very easy, loving relationship, but neither of us can get away with anything. Sometimes I would like to, but there's no escape. She's my peer, and she sees right through me. She recognizes all the different layers of my neuroses, all of that. So when I am stressed or tired and something kicks in that's not so mature, if I don't catch it right away, she is guaranteed to catch it. And my job is to cut through the pride that doesn't want to admit that, come clean, and get on with it. And the more you do that, the easier it gets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I really can relate to what you said about 
not getting away with anything. And it's getting more and more like that with us too. And there are times when I really like to be, you know, sincerely passive aggressive and get away with it, but I can't anymore. Yeah. I get the look, you know. And then we get to blow the whistle on ourselves. What a wonderful thing to blow the whistle on ourselves and to see our egoity, that dreaded thing spiritual circles often tend to put down, to see it with compassion. Here's, here's this aspect of me that's I would call like a cult of one. That's what I call ego. But it's part of us. And to look at it with compassion, not like I have to get rid of this, but I don't want to identify with it. I don't want to let it run the show. But it has its place in our psyche, just like the child in you has a place in your psyche, the inner critic does, this spiritually ambitious part of you. The spiritual bypasser, too. We all have a spiritual bypasser in us. That was one of the things I did when I reworked my book with the aid of a good editor was I made sure that uh, I made the point again and again and again that we all have that tendency. It's not just a few New Age people or a few Vipassana experts or people at the top of the TM pyramid. It's We all have that. Right. And, the, and then the question becomes, what do we do with that tendency? Mm-hmm. If we pretend it's not there, we're in trouble. If we can say, it, here, it is here, here it is now, then we see something painful and we take that slow, conscious step toward it. We turn toward it. So in a way, the mantra really would be no more turning away or what mm-hmm. am I avoiding? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this- I've noticed all of your books too, um, like in particular spiritual bypassing, like the wins factor could have been there a whole lot more except for the compassion and the inclusiveness that you wrote into it so that never did anyone feel um, like, um, oh, my God, I feel so ashamed oh, because yeah, I'm doing this. You know? <laughs> well, the wince factor was there in books I wrote before I had that experience uh, in 1994. Afterwards, uh, the yeah. wince factor was eradicated yeah. from my system to the point where I could not reanimate it. Mm-hmm. I realize because I've seen people who somebody's in a session, if they just simply can just say a, a phrase with a slightly raised tone, it's a major step because they were they were suppressed so much as a child. They, if they raised their voice, there was an incredible danger. I've learned to, in other words, take into account each person's capacity for how far they can go. Some people are ready to go right to the primal core of their deepest wounds very quickly. Other people need to inch their way in. And what we do is we teach people to become more knowing of their resistance to the process without shaming them for having resistance. We all have resistance. If we didn't have it, we'd all be absolutely enlightened. We have that, and there's a reason we have it. I think we're here to honor that. The other aspect of your your teaching is just your writing skills themselves. Uh, You talk about holy poetics. Just, you know the ability of language to actually transcend itself and to not so much uh, explain but reveal uh, something deeper than the language on the surfaces that's there. It just takes you to, to a, yeah. a feeling and an understanding of paradox, mm-hmm. which uh, most writers you know, just hit on occasionally, but you seem to have it in every chapter. Well, I, I, I feel it a lot, so it's yeah. natural. And what it is, I feel like I'm downloading. I mean, I've got, I've, I, I write very quickly. First draft is off. I don't have to change it that much. And, and I love poetry. I began writing poetry spontaneously when I was uh, 21 years old doing a Ph.D. in biochemistry, which is the wrong path for me, but I was, I was, I was good at it, so I was being pressured into it. But I wrote poetry in secret in the libraries where I was beside these extremely arcane biochemistry texts and doing my doctoral work. And I began writing poetry then and began 
torturing my housemates with renditions, but I would <laughs> insist on reading it, sharing it. So I, I love poetry. So when I'm writing prose, if the poetic wants to come through, I let it. And I find, like you were alluding to, that paradox is more easily transmitted through that. Yeah. You can, if you say it logically and dryly, it, it, the words don't carry it enough. And, yeah. and of course, what's needed here, too, is someone has to read it with the receptive ear. Mm-hmm. Well, I find many that, people, you're writing, that you're writing, it's not just the poetry, but the prose itself has those uh, holy poetics that, that transcend and, and uh, enable you know, to fall into a paradox of one subject or another. The prose itself. Yeah. In fact, I get it more from the prose than I do from the poetry. The poetry is a little bit too, too inclusive for me. I can't hold it all. I, I, I like poetic prose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's uh, one thing that's taken me a long time to adjust to is the fact that apparently the correlation between higher consciousness and morality or behavior, you know, behavioral mm-hmm. perfection mm-hmm. is not as tight as I once believed it was. It sure isn't. And, <laughs> and you know, and it's puzzling. That was an explicit teaching in, in the theater yeah. moment. And, um, it almost seems like it's, it's very hard to find an exception to the rule that, you know, apparently very high spiritual beings still screw up pretty badly uh, sometimes, you know, famous teachers and so on. Well, it's happening more and more. I mean, more and more teachers have been caught with pants and halos down, and it's just happening left, right, and center, which I think is really good. It's being exposed, and it's not like what I see is lopsided development. Spiritual achievement of high spiritual states, um, cognitive levels off the map sometimes, but the moral development is often quite low. And a lot of that, that has to do with the fact that the sexual line of development is, is often not touched. Everything else has been worked on. Like for example, in the integral model, um, sexuality is, uh, is usually not considered to any depth. So when we used to give talks in Boulder, we'd bring that up and say, you know what, a lot of our sexuality is really an eroticizing of unresolved wounds. It's not really healthy sex. It's something quite different. But that was uh, often met, uh, wasn't received that well in many quarters because it means here's this feel-good thing we have. Why, why jeopardize it? And yet, if you if you really want to look at your life closely, you have to include your sexuality. And teachers that haven't or that have justified uh, being sexual students, and so many words perhaps saying, well, this is, this is the Dharma. This is a great teaching. This is, look what I'm giving you. When in fact, they're just acting out their lust with someone who's, who's looking up to them and doesn't have their own capacity to say no front and center. I do hold people responsible who, are, who get into that trouble with teachers, but I hold the teachers more responsible. And it's very, very common. Yeah, and of course, many times these teachers were brought up in ashrams in, in India or in, in monastic situations where mm-hmm. they never had to deal with anything like that. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, they're in the West with all these pretty young girls looking at them and mm-hmm. <laughs> brings up exactly. things they didn't realize they had. And a lot of Western teachers are doing it who don't have that excuse. Yeah, yeah. And and what's frightening is to look at what some of the students will say when these things happen. They'll say things like, this is a, this is maybe a great teaching. How do I know this isn't crazy wisdom? Who am I to judge? And I think even the most immature of us still has a bullshit detector. If we're around someone who's more developed, who misbehaves, we know in our heart of hearts something's off, but we may be a little frightened to say because that person has more authority. So I think a healthy teacher encourages students to have access to their own innate autonomy and authority right from the very beginning. 
which means he or she will get questioned more, but it makes, it makes things healthier. It makes the possibility that this thing will turn into a cult less likely. But that's uncommon, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, go ahead. I just yeah. wanted to ask one question yeah. back to you. Well, yeah. I, I noticed, um, I noticed in, in your writing and speaking now and also on your... Um, in your newsletter, that that you speak uh, from a deep level of integration of opposites, obviously, and um, I haven't read this this autobiographical book that Fax is reading right now. But I wonder if you could speak a little bit uh, about did you have a spiritual awakening, daytime place kind of thing, or did you gradually emerge into this understanding of the paradoxical? wholeness of life. Uh, well, I, I felt that as a young child, mm -hmm. I felt uh, incredibly open to the mystery, so to speak. I had astonishing experiences, but I had, there was no context for it. My parents didn't understand it, so it, it kind of it left me once I started school, and I was extremely good at school, so that kind of obscured that more mystical time in my life, and then I was being, uh, 22 or so, I had my first psychedelic experience, I, the gates blew open. I discovered Ramana Maharshi. I read him. I thought, wow. I just looked at his eyes, and I felt, I felt a seed of awakening spread on me. I was just very young. I was immature, but it hit me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was in a very painful relationship at the same time, which was so painful, I had to go to therapy. I, wouldn't, I, I was not going to go to therapy. I was a hyper-masculine guy. I don't do that type of thing. But I, was, I had to do therapy at the same time I was doing this other practice, more spiritual practices and doing yoga. Mm -hmm. And as I did more of that, I had more and more uh, deep openings, and I became capable of being conscious of my dreams uh, quite often. Mm -hmm. So I worked on myself in my dreams. I would meet spiritual teachers. I'd, I'd die. I had hundreds of unusual experiences. I did it until I got sick of the novelty of it. But, I, but I, I enjoyed the state experiences of uh, bodiless consciousness uh, being aware of, in a lucid dream of the dreamer and watching the whole dream dissolve. And yet I found none of that altered who I was in daily life or in relational life. I was still the same person despite this incredible number of experiences. And I still didn't get it then that that was not what it was about. And as I said earlier, when I hit my 40s, I began to become intimate with all these qualities of myself. And I started to really grow and get more grounded. And I had a lot of openings um, along the way. I still do, but I don't, I'm not enamored of the states like I once was. They're just, mm -hmm. so what? I mean, mm -hmm. it's... They come and go. They come and go. But something else doesn't come and go, and I find mm -hmm. that far more fascinating. Mm -hmm. So was there a time, perhaps as a result of that ayahuasca-related drug, that, that, that something else which doesn't come and go ceased to go? <laughs> uh, you know, was there... A lot of people speak of a sort of a somewhat dramatic turning point, you know, not necessarily flashy, but sort of um, irreversible. Well, I had my dramatic definitive. turning points when I was much younger. Like when I had, when I was much younger, for example, I had the experience of, of who and what I truly am, or it just hit me like a sledgehammer. And I was completely aware of who and what I am. And all I could say for a day was I am, and it was ringing through every cell. I had that when I was much younger. And I had experiences like that. The 5-methoxy DMT journey exposed me to what I would call the dark side of the big picture. I felt what I would call transpersonal terror. I, it was so powerful. It was so uncanny. It was so, even for me who loves language, I could not find language for it. I attempted to when I wrote the book, but it's pretty much impossible. And 
I would feel myself flung into, I would call, I know, non-dual state, then things would arise. There'd be that could pull or not pull. The fear was, was, was so strong. It wasn't just like it was ordinary emotional fear. It was physiological. I'd had seizures. My whole system would be jerked by it. And I found it more skillful to flow with that than to try and pull back from a distance and witness it. So my witnessing became inseparable from my experience of these things directly. Right. So it was, I would call it full-blooded witnessing. Mm-hmm. There was no escape, mm-hmm. which I hated at the time. But after a while, I realized this is wonderful. There's, uh, there's a, this is a witnessing that requires no separation from the object. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then the witness would dissolve, and there just was pure being. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that would come and go. And it was, and I, at that point, then silence kicks in. There's not much more you can say. <laughs> I'm sure you're aware that there's a whole crop of teachers out there who would consider most of this discussion to be a frivolous distraction of some kind because they feel like there is no person. Therefore, you know, who is there to, you know, feel pain and who is there to, you know, in other words, rather than sort of going into all that, why not just ask the basic question of, you know, who is it that experiences this? It, and and therefore they tend to brush it all off as a story. And, yeah. you know, and they would consider this to just be some sort of indulgent entertainment going around and around in, in a never-ending sort of... A, and what I would say to them is that they are, they, are, they are suffering from dissociation in spiritual robes. They're caught in that. Mm-hmm. And the test it would be, can they be in a relationship? Can they, can they be intimate with another human being? Can they be authentic in relationship? And that's part, of, that's part of the test. It's so easy to, to rationalize and spiritually rationalize dissociation from the difficult, from the painful, as if somehow that's not part of the plan. Somehow that's an error in the system. I mean, it's here for a reason. I mean, suffering can be grace. In fact, it should be grace. And I think our real work is let's not turn our pain into suffering. Let's not dramatize it and get lost in it, but let's honor the pain. I mean, if you're in a lot of pain, say just pure physical pain, agonizing back pain, and I'm with you. I'm going to teach you to go into that pain so deeply that you don't mind it, even though it hurts like hell. If you were dissociated, separate from it, you would feel it less intensely. You'd, be more, you'd learn less because you're too removed from it. And I think dissociation goes on at every stage of development. What would you say to a, uh, one of the, a non-dual teacher who said, yeah, my relationship is fine. I, I have a good marriage, but there really is no person who has this marriage because I, there is no one here. Uh, you know, it's just an apparent person going through the motions, and yet it's a fine relationship. I'd say stop hiding in those concepts. Just get in there, get real, get messy, get involved, and you'll find a deeper spirituality. I mean, it's a valid thing to ask, inquire into who it is who's having the experience, but you don't want to let that inquiry separate you. See, it can get very subtle. Someone can be a very advanced meditator and use these methods to stand apart from life a little too far. It's like that famous line in a James Joyce novel where he said, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> I, think a lot, I think a lot of the non-dual teachers are, are, are missing something. Some aren't. Some are really getting it. Like when Scott interviewed me, I thought he was getting it. But a lot are not really sinking in. Scott is considered a heretic, incidentally, in some non-dual circles these days. Scott Kilby, he's a Scott. Yeah. Well, <laughs> then Adyashanti has to be considered a heretic, too, because he's, he's actually 
talking about a lot of things I'm talking about without probably going into them as deeply, but is getting how important it is to have a raw heart, to have an open heart, even to have a broken heart, because a broken heart is actually a broken, open heart. And if you stay too far from life, you don't get that. And you also can get people get so lost in the sense that this is all an illusion, except for, of course, their statement that it's all an illusion. It's, it's, this is, to me, this is, this is very real. I mean, we're, the four of us are showing up here. We're all expressions of something that's profoundly mysterious and wonderful and everlasting. But here we are, each unique and each having our own peculiar paths to follow. And to try to, and to trivialize that or to push it aside to me is, uh, is dehumanizing. I, I feel angry sometimes at the teachers who I feel are dehumanized in the process of being human through cleverly using concepts that come from non-dual teachings. Yeah, there's a Tibetan proverb that I'm getting a lot of mileage out of these days, which is um, don't mistake understanding for realization. Don't mistake realization for liberation. Yes, and then this Nagarjuna is saying he feels so, in his, my own words, he say he feels so sorry for those who are clinging to emptiness, <laughs> getting attached to non-attachment. I mean, you know what? Without attachment, there's no compassion. And I am profoundly attached to Diane. I mean, if she died tomorrow, I'd be devastated. I, but I'm not practicing being detached. I prefer to get, it's not addictive, but to get so attached, there's no escape. There's no escape. And I find that more growthful than keeping myself removed so I don't have to get too involved. And I can have a little removed from life. I'd rather get right in there, keep my eyes open, of course, and live it. I, I'll, I'll ask one more thing that let you guys have a turn. But I, I think that in proper understanding of spirituality, detachment doesn't mean some kind of emotional blandness or some such thing. It's because it's not the individuality that's detached. It's it's some deeper level that that sort of has its independent status regardless of what's happening in the relative. But the individuality can, for all appearances, be completely attached, completely involved, completely care about situations, uh, even though there might be some deeper dimension of life that's unruffled by those situations. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important to not make a problem out of attachment. Right. Like we have to stop demonizing it and and looking down upon those who who have it. Now, when it when it when it, when it mutates into addiction, there's a real problem. Uh, and then we have codependency. Like when I look at relationships very briefly, I see four stages. One, the first is me-centered. That's where two people are very selfish. There's like two cults of one trying to get it on. It does not work at all. It's very messy. It's reactive. It's unconscious. Then we go to we-centered, codependent. That's where attachment gets very unhealthy, what you're alluding to. The next stage for me is we-centered co-independent. That means the people are close, but they've got their autonomy. Trouble is they've got too much autonomy. But it's a necessary step. You have to have autonomy to have a good relationship. Otherwise, you get fused. People get too close, and they can't see each other clearly. Fourth stage to me is um, I call it being-centered. Is centered by pure awareness, but it's not a dissociative awareness. It also could be called mature monogamy. And that's, I think, what couples that are really going for it end up practicing. And when you practice that, you realize that the earlier stages are still within you. Any, any being-centered couple can still regress to an egocentric level, but they don't stay stuck there. Right. But implicit in that model, you see, attachment is neurotic in the beginning. It's neurotic in stage two, stage three. Not so neurotic. Being centered, the attachment's not neurotic. It's part of life. 
And the more attached we are, I think the more deeply we feel. And I think a lot of people who are lost in the spiritual bypassing we're talking about don't feel fully. And I feel fully because they're missing something. They don't feel their relationship passionately. They're in nature. They don't feel it fully. And to feel something fully, you have to open the body. You have to be undefended. And if you're undefended, you're going to get hurt. But you're also going to feel things more fully. So that's why I make such a strong case for feeling fully, passionately, responsibly too, but not to repress it. And if it is repressed, to get help to unrepress. Yeah, just to see if I understand what you just said, uh, I think what you're saying is that being has its own integrity. But part of that integrity is that it has no problem with identification. Or attachment. Mm-hmm. It's it, mm-hmm. it's part of you could say the what the essence of what it is. It's separate at, and yet at the same time attached. It's it's yeah. separate yet at the same time feels and experiences. Yes, and at that at, at that stage, paradox is not a problem. Right. And see, at that stage, mm-hmm. the the mystery appears as paradox to the mind, but as truth to the heart. Yes. And and and, that, and this is not an intellectual understanding. You get it right down to your core, right to your marrow, and then you just sense the inherent paradoxicalness of life when you go into it at a very deep level, and you don't mind it. And at the same time, you still have um, your moral integrity on hand. You can you know when something's off, and you can speak up. You have the capacity to say no. You have the firm enough boundaries that if someone crosses them, you can you can step in, not just say, well, uh, you know. That must just be your karma, or or I don't want to hurt you. Sometimes you have to say no. We see many people on spiritual paths who have not learned how to say the simple word no from their guts. So they get walked on, they get hurt, they become too nice, they get attached to being nice, left, right, and center. It's so important to have the capacity to say no, and that means your anger has to be on tap. Not to overuse it, but if you cannot uh, say a, a strong, authentic no, life is more difficult. And then your yes becomes anemic. People won't believe it as much. Um, By the way, I want to say I appreciate I appreciate the energy I feel from all three of you. I, I'm really enjoying sitting here doing this. It's my first time doing this, but it's a, it's a pleasure. So well, thank, thank you. you. First time doing it with three people, you mean? <laughs> no, I'm doing this. I always, I always do my phone things. I like to have my eyes closed so I can really focus. Oh, I do yeah. a lot of therapy oh, over the over yeah. that way, yeah. and my interviews have all been phone. Oh, I see. Yeah, I like doing them as person. videos because it opens up a whole new channel. A lot of people like to watch it, and I can put it on YouTube and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm curious um, when you when you do work with people and you say you know to be with them very closely as they go step by step as they're ready into these yeah. more difficult places um, and naming it as a part of it. It reminds me a little of, I, I learned how to do um, uh, focusing, interrelationship focusing. Is it similar to that kind of a it's, procedure? It's or? some, but, but we work with detail a lot. So if I work with a new person in a group or a session mm-hmm. and I hear a little bit of history, I hear about a current situation that's difficult, then I hear some early history connect the dots usually very quickly because usually they're, they're pretty easy to do. Then I have that person shift to a more feeling level so they feel what was going on that was difficult originally 
and it's connected to what's going on now. And we're not talking at this point. Maybe they're on a bodywork mat. I'm doing some bodywork in their neck, their throat. Mm-hmm. As I give them sentences to finish, they're directly tied into their particular story. And inevitably, there's release, and there's insight, and there's more balance. And that's, it's not all done in one session, but, but that opens the door very quickly. And I have to involve the body because yes. almost everything is difficult is in the body. So if we could talk forever about your difficulty with, say, shame, but if I cannot get a chance to work on your neck, <laughs> yeah. jaw, we may not touch it very deeply. Or if, say, your breathing's mm-hmm. locked up across your diaphragm and I'm releasing that and you're saying certain things to certain people as that happens. Mm-hmm. See, I call that connected catharsis. It means there's an opening and release but it's connected to specific events. Right. And it looks like yes. therapy, but yeah. I, sometimes it feels more like a shamanic. Uh-huh. It has yeah. a ritualistic feeling to it. Mm-hmm. It often makes the hair raise up on the arm sometimes, and it's very deep work. Mm-hmm. And we often work with people who have had extreme abuse histories. Mm-hmm. So we have to be very, go in there very carefully and very intuitively. And I'm doing that, and Diane's doing it too, so we have both, she's very intuitive. So we both are going in there with that person and holding them. We're, how can I put it? It's like we're being... Providing them with a crucible and a sanctuary at the same time. At the same time, yeah. At the same time, the crucible yeah. supplies the necessary heat to melt do the melting mm-hmm. down of some resistance and blockages, and the sanctuary so they feel safe enough to mm-hmm. do that. And that then, if mm-hmm. they feel the tears come, they can let themselves flow, mm-hmm. and and the emotion flows freely. Mm-hmm. There's such a such a spiritual ease afterwards. And cleansing, yeah. A cleansing, yeah. 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 Oh, Thank you. A lot of people have been involved with. Uh, spiritual bypassing, different paths, and spiritual teachers for quite a while now. Yeah. Uh, would you say that there's uh, an increasing interest in your work? Have you noticed, like, in the last year or two years, it's been uh, more yes. well-received, more people coming, and so on? Yep, yep. And, I, and I, what I like to, is that there's been more people who are uh, I described as new age who are going, oh, my God, oh, my <laughs> God, that's me. And it's like 10 years ago, they weren't ready for it. Now they can go hear it. Instead of defending the secret or whatever to me, they want to talk about yeah. some things they've hidden from others because they were embarrassed to admit them, that they've actually had doubts that they are creating their reality or that, or that they aren't manifesting money just because of the way they're thinking. <laughs> they're seeing through that type of magical thinking, and they're relieved to talk with me. And inevitably, most of them end up doing therapy on the phone, and then I often say, if this is good, come to Ashton for a three-day intensive with us. Just do like five, six hours of face-to-face therapy spiritual work, body work, and that's all the time we usually need to take it pretty far. And that's what happens. Mm-hmm. So more of that's been happening since the book came out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Are your groups uh, like a moderate size, say 10 to 15 or smaller? I'm lowering them. I used to do groups of 45 or 50 people, wow. and I could do a lot of work. I've, I've had a lot of methods, and I'm pretty fast. But in the last number of years, I've narrowed that down. So our last group, was a one-week group for just 12 people. Mm-hmm. And we're going to limit our groups to 12 people now because I can get around to each person three or four times in a group. Mm-hmm. And, and things deepen with a small group. No one gets left out. Mm-hmm. Everyone is mm-hmm. worthy of being there. And our favorite group, mm-hmm. other than the bigger week-long ones, is a couple. We love doing couples work because that's mm-hmm. a group, watching the energy between two people, working with that. And individual mm-hmm. work's a pleasure too. And every, and every session is different, so we have no plan, so we get to be creative each time. Like, it's a new therapy for an, each person each time. In listening to recordings of you and reading your books, I, I kind of got the impression that you feel that 
therapy is almost obligatory on the spiritual path, that there is no, no real spiritual path in the marketplace that could be adequate to um, you know, bring a person all the way, if there is such a thing as all the way, without therapy as, uh, as an adjunct. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yep. Huh. I think so. I think, I think it's, it doesn't mean you have to be really, really damaged. Sometimes the therapy at its best is for those who are already doing really well but want to do even better. We often get people who are done a lot of work in themselves, are very mature, and they want to take it even deeper. So what about the whole history of spirituality prior to, let's say, you know, 50, 100 years ago when there weren't really any therapies per se and people just did spiritual practices and you feel like somehow they never achieved the sort of fullness of development that is possible now? I think in, with the very rare exceptions that could have happened. I really do. I think it can still happen with very rare exceptions, but I think those people in a way are entering the realms that therapy would take them into spontaneously rather than bypassing them. Like Romano went into a place of pure terror when he was 16, and he was already a rare being. It blew him open, and he, it wasn't just a state experience. It, put, it was a stage. He stayed there, right. as far as I can tell. He stayed there. But I think a lot of teachers get lopsided. Even one like Romano, they were not able to teach about the psychological and emotional dimensions of life. They were really He was very adept at teaching about the the big picture stuff, the inquiry process, wonderful stuff. But to me, it's a partial path. It's not truly integral. And I think we're in the age now where we can actually be integral in our work on ourselves. So I think an enlightenment is possible now that is more full-blooded, full-bodied, involves the whole being, and it involves getting right down into right down to our toes, where we're so embodied, we're so here, we're so relational, and we're also absolutely relational with the divine. And it's all happening at once. So the beloved is sitting across from you, and the beloved is also pervading you. And it happens all at the same time. And after all, it becomes quite ordinary that that's occurring. Not like, oh, my God, this is amazing. It's not a state, as you say. It's a, it no. becomes a permanent. It is. It's like reality. a clearing we step into. And after you step into it, it's really hard to step back. So you must resonate with... Andrew Cohen and some of these evolutionary enlightenment people who feel that the whole world, the whole world of spirituality itself, is breaking new ground. I do, and I don't, uh -huh. because say with his system, the lack of emphasis on psychological and personal work is a is a real shortcoming. Uh -huh. Also, to me, I think the age of the guru is coming to an end. So there's still a few around like him and a few others, but I think the I've always liked what Thich Nhat Hanh said a long time ago about the next uh, Buddha will not be a person but a community. Mm -hmm. And implicit in that is a community of peers right. So, and yeah. who have worked on themselves enough. There's no spiritual pride there, no spiritualized egoity or narcissism. Mm -hmm. There's true health and there's accountability. And without that, you know, I mean, I just think the age of the guru is, is done. Huh. I mean, it, it, it had its time. Mm -hmm. I think it's not, not fitting now. Years ago, uh, Arjuna Arda wrote a book. Um, called Relaxing into Clear Seeing. And he had a, a thing in there that really stuck with me, which is talking about who would the next Buddha be. And, and the um, traditions say he'll be called Maitreya Buddha. Yes. And Arjuna said, uh, My, Maitreya means friend. And so he postulated that our, our teachers, our gurus, would be our mutual groups, our friends that mm -hmm. with whom we're in deep mutuality. Yes. 
It's just like every ship needs a captain, but if the captain thinks he or she's better than the, than the deckhand, there's a problem. And, if, and also, if there's too much egalitarianism, there's a problem. If everyone actually everyone's at the same level, there's a problem. Like you have to honor those that are more mature mm-hmm. without getting down on your knees and looking up at them like they have all the power and the right. authority. Right. So, it's, but see, this all requires a certain maturity. It, it, it does, and, it, and I think that's why authentic community is a very rare thing because it takes very mature people to do it, not that many people who are capable of it would actually want to do it. Mm-hmm. For most of us, the community of just being with a partner is enough. Mm-hmm. And that, that takes it, this, you know, as you both know, it takes it, how long have you been together? 35 or so, like maybe almost 40 years now. Wow. Yeah. And I'm in my 24th or something. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> But that takes that takes something just to maintain that and have that. Mm-hmm. And we've been through, you know, all the stages that you you listed there of relationship, and, <laughs> so and still find ourselves falling into all of them several times a day. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it funny though? I mean, one thing we do, uh, Diana and myself, sometimes we, we if one of us is reactive, we'll have that one exaggerated not all, mm-hmm. and it becomes hilarious very quickly because there we are taking ourselves so seriously like look look what he just said or she just said and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we can get so caught in that despite all our spiritual knowledge and maturity but when we exaggerate it it becomes so obvious what we're doing it's like high class mm-hmm. melodrama mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or we also have sometimes have people have what I call a conscious rant you have a really hard day you're tired you come home you give the context say here's what was going on I'm going to have a conscious rant. You go nuts for three or four minutes, and it's observed by a compassionate partner. Then it's done, which mm-hmm. is much sure beats getting into a fight or being uh, being mm-hmm. kind of in a bad mood for hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I would say uh, I would agree with you uh, in the beginning of that book on relationship that um, relationship, intimate relationship with a committed partner in a monogamous relationship where you're both aiming at that mature level of, of mutual realization, that is a, a crucible for awakening, which is, uh, I think it compares with any cave that a yogi would sit in for generations. It is, it is a very hot cave. It is, yes. <laughs> and in, in that, I think we realize more and more that there is transformation possible through intimacy. Mm-hmm. And there's also freedom through limitation. We realize the limitations of our relationship actually are liberating us because we're being held. We have to go very deep within a fairly, fairly narrow confines. And that we're not allowed to distract ourselves or leave the container of the relationship and stray elsewhere. So it deepens our focus. I think that's a wonderful thing. And in that, we have to really say, I, I, I have to protect the integrity of this relationship, this container, and so does my partner. It's a sacred thing. Yeah. It's true. I was on a monastic program for many years uh, called Purusha in the TM movement, and uh, you know, living with a bunch of single guys. And if somebody started to rub you the wrong way, you could just kind of gravitate off in some other direction, hang out oh, yeah. with somebody else. <laughs> and it was interesting to see how, how idiosyncratic many people became, myself included to a great extent. And, you know, when I got married, I, I transitioned quite abruptly from Purusha to being married. 
and boy, but shit really hit the fan, you know, because <laughs> uh, I wasn't used to sort of being with one person and you can't just walk away if, if there's some kind of friction. You had to actually work through it. Uh, then you then then you you discover what's right about what's wrong. Well, in other words, you take what's not working in the relationship, and it becomes uh, kind of a compost for more growth. Assuming that both people are willing to work with it. Yeah, it took me a while to realize that, um, and I struggled. Yeah. I struggled and resisted, and you know. You know what? Something you said just a moment ago struck me about the idiosyncratic quality, and I think it's so important to honor our individuality. We're each a unique flowering. There's never been another one exactly like us. And to not honor that in the name of some bigger picture, I think it does is discredit to our humanity. I was uh, maybe obsessiveness might have been a better word. In, in my case, it was it was possible to become really sort of kooky and obsessive and, and off balance uh, without the sort of counterbalancing uh, mm -hmm. quality of, of a, a close relationship. And when maybe been, that was just me. I mean, I, I'm not saying that happened. It might have been you just were going from one extreme to the other. Yeah. 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 That often happens. Here's one for you. Um, do you. Do you feel that a person could sort of spiritually bypass all their lives and never break out of it, that they could somehow just get stuck in that groove? Or do you feel that there's some kind of force of nature or something that's eventually going to shake them loose and make them progress i'd say both but there are people who could do this their entire lives they might have done a spiritual path their whole lives and they get older and they get kind of rigid in their ways and they stick with it and they stick with it and what's unresolved in them does not get resolved just because they're dying when they die of course they may uh, go into a very deep transcendent state but they have not completed something i think uh ideally each of us would complete all our unresolved issues before we die and to do that, we have to be willing to dig down deep and, and see what they are. There's some things we may not even know that are in us until we dig down. But once you dig down, it all surfaces. And once it surfaces, you can work with it. And then it becomes just more you. you it's like another piece of, of you. Another piece of Rick has now been reclaimed, so you become an even fuller human being. Got <laughs> you full of human beings here. Huh? I just wanted to say too how much I honor um, your orientation to um, actually use a person's story as a gateway toward their um, more full embodiment of consciousness. Yes, and because I, I, that's that's such a an angle that is has become popular in the last ten twenty years with some teachers, particularly in the West, is. That's just your story, and don't get into your story. And and in some way, the the story of a person's suffering is um, considered to be irrelevant. And it's it's, it's totally relevant. And those, to me, the, the teachers that do that are actually mm -hmm. dangerous and deluded. Mm -hmm. I say those are strong words, but I really mean them because if, mm -hmm. if you because if you have students around and you tell them it's just your story or that's just your story and they're looking up to you, they may then feel like they are not allowed to go in there and look at that and they may find that what is unresolved, of course it's going to keep on polluting their current life. If they haven't dealt with, say, a, a difficult time with their father when they were a kid, how, are, how is this, say, it's a woman, how would she deal with her husband skillfully? She isn't. And as the teacher says, that's just your story, that, that invites an incredible amount of bypassing. Mm -hmm. 
and it makes people feel ashamed for having a story, for having a – it dishonors it. And like you said, each of our stories are essential. If I want to know someone's – the way to their liberation, I find their stories an essential part of it because each person has a unique set of circumstances that have shaped them as they are. Once we tease that apart, we can see the dynamics that have made them the way they are. It's so liberating. Mm-hmm. And I think – yeah. It's so liberating in, in a non-generic way, too. It's mm-hmm. a very specific um, path for that person. And it requires, it means that you have to have a specific practice uniquely tailored for that person that is psychotherapeutic, spiritual, uh, somatic, psychological. You know, it crosses the board, but it's uniquely suited for them. So when I teach people meditative practices, I try and find something that works uniquely for that person. Well, it's like everyone has to just do a Zen method or a, a Vipassana or whatever. Maybe someone's method is to is to dance. Or for me, I like to work out a lot. So if I'm at the gym, I'm doing meditative practice while I'm doing the weights. It's a perfect time to work with my breath. Or if I'm doing an aerobic workout, to be aware of every sensation I can feel and say one leg, the other leg, my hips, my breathing. So I'm getting a massive workout, and I'm also paying attention the whole time. Do you ever work with people where you don't give them a regimen of different things to do, and just yep. other than just maybe uh, talk? Yep. Somebody, so some, for some people, just to talk is enough. Some sort of people who've never had their story heard, when that happens, Diane and I become just extremely receptive listeners, and that's all we do. But at a certain point with them, we'll, there'll be a little crack. We'll step in ask them to close their eyes, guide them into a deeper sense of themselves, do some other practice, and then the work deepens. But they mean to talk for a while before that happens. Other people don't want to talk. It'd be wrong to talk with them because they're, they're, they're so full of tears and grief or anger. It's important to start with that. Then they can talk once that's been opened up. Then the insights will emerge. So it's, it's, it's not one size fits all. It's not it's like a something, cutter yeah, process. <laughs> not at all. It can't be. I guess these teachers who say it's just your story, they're, they're, I guess what they're trying to do is you know, break one's sort of myopic absorption and personality and individuality and point to, to something you know, more universal or transcendent. I guess that's the motivation. There's too much of a rush to get to the universal. I think, I think what you want to do is get to the universal without, without uh, trampling over the personal to get there and you're rushed to have it. And, and sometimes uh, people can get lost in their story. Say in standard psychotherapy, there are people who've gone to a therapist two or three times a week for years. And we meet them and we see, sense no growth because they've had a codependent relationship with a therapist. The therapist gets some more income. They get a, a person that listens to them. That, is, that gives therapy a bad name. On the other hand, um, putting... Uh, the whole thing with Ramana Maharshi and the, the procedures that came out of his teaching to turn back and to uh, investigate uh, who am I yeah. uh, can provide spiritual recognitions which can form a basis for doing the work that you're speaking of. It provides more yes. of a platform and more of a a foundation to go into those areas. In other words, like a, it's like a prerequisite. It is. Cases. It is. So if someone's doing very deep uh, work on their abuse history, 
we want them to have some capacity for mindfulness, some capacity for, for uh, true awareness. Because when they get in there, I want them to be able to still hear what we're saying, to not get completely lost in it. Or if they do get lost in it, if I give them a signal, they can come out. It's like a thread. You know, in the Minotaur myth where this is, the hero carries a thread all the way down to meet the Minotaur, there has to be that thread of connection. So if somebody, someone has an abuse history, we will see them leave their body, so to speak, during the work. I'll sense where they are. We call them back in. We, without shaming them, just say, okay, where did you leave? Where are you coming back in? What was happening for you right before that happened? There's a tracking of it. And there's a sense of, of inviting them to be a co-witness of the process with us, even though they're, 95% of them is completely involved in the, in the extreme pain of it. So you're right. There, there has to be that cultivation of a spiritual perspective. Yeah. And, and the courage to go into these places, these zones of ourselves that are very uncomfortable and dark. But I, li- I like this, this, to say again and again, here's the treasure. We all want the, the treasure, whatever it is. And there's, there's a dragon there. And we can't bribe or seduce the dragon. We, we have to face it. We have to get into it. We have to somehow become intimate enough with it that we can get past it. And that's not easy. And yet that very, that very process, here's the beautiful part, that process of facing the dragon prepares us, it readies us to make wise use of the treasure. If you got the treasure too fast, you wouldn't know what the hell to do with it. Hmm. You'd abuse it, you'd spend it all, um, you'd fortify your egoity through it. But once you've been sufficiently prepared by your encounter with the dragon, then you can use it well. Right. I mean, I've worked with people that have, have come into uh, greater recognition of themselves in both ways. They've, they've come in by by uh, facing the dragon and then finding the treasure. And in a sense, they've, they've found a treasure uh, that prepared them to face the dragon. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of their identity with consciousness, it, it, was, it provided a foundation for their, yes. their yeah. courage to go into the face. Exactly. The or even intuiting. Intuiting that makes a huge difference. Right. right. Yes. There's another uh, theme I'm reminded of, and that is that it seems to be quite common these days that people read a few books or go to a few satsangs, and they get an intuitive sense of what's being taught, and they somehow come to and they and they hear teachers saying to them, "Give up the search. You know, you don't really need to do anything. Practices are are only going to reinforce the sense of mm-hmm. a doer," mm-hmm. and so they kind of get into this intellectual mood that they have arrived already. Um, you know, and that is, to, to my mind, is spiritual bypassing big time because they've actually bypassed the entire, you know, <laughs> I mean, they haven't actually bypassed it because they haven't really begun it, but they, they, in their mind, they think they've completed it. And yet, you know, there's, there could be like, you know, miles to go before I sleep, so to speak. I remember a story about the Dalai Lama um, years ago where a man from the audience said, asked, how can I get to enlightenment more quickly? And apparently the Dalai Lama, all he did, he sat there and he started to weep. And then he spoke and he said he felt so sad for this man. This man must be in such pain that he'd want to get there in such a hurry. There's that spiritual ambition we have to address in ourselves. We want to get there too fast. And we live in a fast food culture, so of course we want our spirituality really fast. Here's a weekend, suddenly, there you are, you're doing satsang. Suddenly, there you are, you're calling yourself a teacher without having gone through what you needed to go through to be a really good teacher. Yeah, I, I actually talked to somebody who 
used to attend a lot of satsangs, and he said it was quite common to hear people speaking among themselves. Can't wait till I get awakened because I want to quit my job and become a, 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 a spiritual teacher. It seems sort of like so much fun. <laughs> well, we can spiritualize anything. Uh, personally, then, I, I, I think sorry. life brings us back to our humanity again and again and again. Yeah, I, personally, I prefer to sort of, if I don't try to figure out where I'm at, so to speak. But if I had to err on this uh, one way or the other, I'd much rather err on the side of uh, thinking myself to be much less advanced than I actually am rather than much more. It seems like it's a more productive perspective to take. Yeah, and I think after a while we stop evaluating how yeah. far along we are. If you're on track, what's beautiful, once you get on track, you know you're on track, you intuit it. It doesn't matter how long it takes as you know you're on track. Right. You, you just sense it. When you get off a little bit, you get back on. You, but there's a sense of, of being on the path that really works for you. And once that happens, I think there's a real ease in us. We just know. Then the ambition to get there in a hurry, it just isn't there. Yeah. And you, you're, what you're talking about, too, is what I would call spiritual greed. There's, like, there's a greed to, to have it. So the new age people talk about having it all, but that can pervade all layers of spirituality, like wanting to get somewhere before we've been there. Yeah. I had a guy once say to me, he was a psychic years, many years ago. He was about 400 pounds. I remember this. He said, he said, I'd love to be where you are, but I would not want to go through what you went through to get there. Huh. And he went further to say he didn't want to go through anything to get there. You know. But, you know, we, we, we all have our suffering we have to go through. And it's like there's no, not like that we wish it on each other, but it's there. To a certain extent, maybe the zeal of youth, you know, we're in our 20s and we're just gung-ho and adamant. And then, you know, now we're in our 50s, 60s, and we kind of mellow out a bit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I find I enjoy each decade more. I mean, I'm, I'm six, almost six, I'll be 64 this year. And I'm enjoying my 60s in a a lot. I I like my fifties, but this is this is it gets better. I mean, the body is behaving quite as well. I mean, I get hurt a little more, and I'm working out. Um, I can feel the aging effects. I have prostate cancer, which I'm is going really well actually of the way I'm dealing with it. But I I find myself enjoying it as I go along more, and I feel more and more intimate with my own uh, mortality, my own death. Yeah. And. I had that experience. I came very close to death. So I, but I've had many times I've come close to death, and I, I feel quite close to it. it doesn't feel like uh, it's just to me. It's just like the opposite isn't life; it's birth. Here's birth. Door swings one way. Here's death swings the other way. And my sense of what happens after death is what it's what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. I feel more more at home with it as I get older. I I thought about it when I was younger, but I was I was going to live forever, of course. <laughs> Well, being close to death must give you a greater passion for life. It does. Yeah. I think when we avoid death, like we do in our culture, it kind of deadens us. Yeah. And the irony is when we get close to death, we become intimate with it, we're more enlivened. We live, we live brighter. If you're aware of each other's mortality, then they, your time together becomes even more precious. I'm sure you both feel that. that you're just aware of this as you age. Wow, well, look what we have and how sad it will be when we part but how grateful I am for having had this. So it's that mixture, isn't it? Yes. Sadness always. of the separation, and yet, mm -hmm. my God, if we didn't weren't mortal, and we had to go on forever. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be as close. That's right. That's right. So, my, yeah. I would say that my most profound spiritual experiences are the ones where uh, both both 
powerful witness and 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 limitation are both there together. Yeah. There's when you feel the when you feel the limitation and you and you feel the infinite expanse of our deepest being at the same time. Yes, there's a poignancy that just uh, it, it's just so alive yeah. and full. A beautiful poignancy. It's the poignancy yeah. of the particular, and what a lovely thing! Each, how unique each flower is, each person, and aching to be known before its demise. Right. And then if we, if we know it well, then I think we have a good death. We can really open ourselves to the um, mystery of death more fully. Woody Allen had a spiritual bypassing joke. He said, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> I remember that one. Is there one of the books? Yeah, it's in Scotland. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> but that's like spiritual bypassing in general, isn't it? Like, I don't want to be there right. when the pain is there. Let me, let me be somewhere else. Let me be full of pharmaceuticals or having an orgasm or being overworking or watching a bunch of TV or doing meditative ascension practices. Let me be away from it. And there's our fear calling to us, not just our fear, but all the pain. And if we don't turn it into suffering, it's not really a terrible thing. That's an interesting. Most, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. And I would say most of us grow the most when we had our difficult times. I mean, when a couple is really flying high, usually they don't grow that much. They enjoy the role. But when the difficulty is encountered and they work it through, they become much closer and more capable the following time a difficulty emerges. And yet most of us have to be hit pretty hard to really turn the corners we have to turn. I mean, my experience in 94 is like a cosmic two-by-four. Okay, I'm not getting something, so here it comes, and there's no way of avoiding it. And part of my story I didn't mention is when I took my first puff of this substance, uh, which I knew in the literature knocks people out completely, I was still able to sit there. And in my arrogance, my chutzpah, I said, give me another puff. Oh. That, that, was, that was it. That was, that was, the, that was the, the peak of my chutzpah. <laughs> and I got nailed. Yeah, yeah. I, thought I, could, I thought I could take it. I realized I got after this. I, I couldn't. There's a breaking point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. One of these days, I'll probably end up interviewing an ayahuasca person just because I kind of run the whole gamut of spiritual trips in this interview series. Well, we've worked with many, many people who have done a lot of ayahuasca. I have many people who have had bad drug trips, but the ayahuasca phenomenon is a little scary because there's many people who take it hundreds of times. The door opens, and they want to go through the same door again and again. And again, it's encouraged culturally. You know, that's Mm -hmm. how they do it in in the Amazon. So what I primarily see with people who have done a lot of it is not only no growth, but no integration. Mm -hmm. And they're, when they open up, they realize they're desperate. They cannot integrate some of the things they've seen. They've seen some of these incredible things, but they have no capacity to integrate it because so much is happening in a short time. So people ask, do I recommend psychedelics? I say, well, it's a crapshoot. So I, I, never say it, I never say to people, do that. Yeah, yeah and I mean, and from what you said, you, you respect the correlation between mind and body and you know, a lot of this stuff can really fry the neurons and, you know, probably cause damage that is difficult to repair. And it shakes up the whole system. Yeah. And, and if you have a blissful time, like I remember this back in the 50s, I think, I remember Adele Davis took acid before she died. and She had profound openings. She died beautifully. Huh. At a similar time, Jean-Paul Sartre probably had one of the highest IQs in the planet, the French existentialist writer. Mm-hmm. He was given something similar. I think it was mescaline, pure mescaline. 
He had a horrifying time, and he was convinced for months afterwards there were giant lobsters pursuing him through the streets of Paris. And he could not, that great mind, that, that could not push aside this, this visceral sense of being pursued by these monsters. So it's heaven or hell, and you don't know which one you're going to get. Yeah. Whereas in deep meditation, it's grounded. You can turn it on or off. I mean, I've had very big openings through just sitting for a long time. So you're not encouraging people to experiment with this stuff in a, in a No, I'll tell you one other thing I found interesting. Here, here's an interesting side note I just thought of. When I practiced lucid dreaming for all those years, I had maybe 500 times of experimenting in that state. A point came where I thought, what would happen if I took a psychedelic in the dream state? So I, I did. And I had full-blown psychedelic experiences while I was in the dream state. Just from the suggestion, because the brain already has these chemicals in it. I did that a few times. Oh, my God, this is I don't need to take something external. It's already in here. And with the suggestion and being in that unusual state of consciousness, it all happened. Interesting. Yeah, I've done that with meditation. I've had times when I'm sitting up in lotus and having this wonderful samadhi, and then I eventually realize I'm flat on the bed to sleep, you know? <laughs> Yes, lovely to meditate in the in the in the uh, awakened dream state. Yeah. It's just, and then inquire, okay, if everything in the dream is part of me, then the role that I'm identified with in the dream that's also part of me. And then your sense of identity just gets blown wide open. But as I said earlier, I did that when I was much younger, and it, and even having had that awakening, I still was the same person in my daily relational activities. Right. That's, that's right. And actually, in, in a certain way, I, I remember uh, years ago when I was taking LSD in particular that um, the it's like walking out of the theater after seeing a really great fancy movie like Star Wars or something. You walk out and everything really looks pretty flat after that. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that with, with the LSD experience that it was so rich and so um, deep. It could be like like you say, heaven or hell. I mean, it could be like unity or actually mm-hmm. lobsters chasing you down the street. But, yeah, yeah. But and it's the intensity of it is so much greater than ordinary life. Once you come back to your ordinary consciousness or your ordinary state, unless you unless you look and unless in your ordinary state, your sense of familiarity with things gets shed. And once it's shed. Then you look at something, you don't sense the name of it. You just you simply you, yes. you kind of you kind of sense the mystery of it. The you can't just it. say tree right. or person or name. That yes. then, then we're in touch with the mystery again. It isn't as spectacular as on say on acid usually, mm-hmm. in terms of colors and visuals, but it's the same mm-hmm. context. Mm-hmm. And I've had the most brilliant colors I've ever seen were when I've been in lucid dreaming, mm-hmm. not taking a drug internally, but just. Mm-hmm just walking down the street and looking at the colors. Mm-hmm. And when I've done deep meditation for extended periods, and I've, and I've maybe come out of it with my eyes, opening my eyes in nature, mm-hmm. the colors are way brighter. Everything's mm-hmm. hyper vivid. And I'm not yet organizing reality according to names and structures. It's more just like this overall naked sense of it. Yes. Like right. I had as a boy, and I, I, can, I still have access to. And that's wonderful. Yeah, that's beautifully put. It's that then you're seeing that, or essences being seen and recognized. Um, yeah, you've you've resonate with the essence of something. Right, 
like a work of art or, or nature, or you look in your partner's eyes for an extended period, and something you just everything just drops away, and it's just a sense of pure being, and yet it's also mysteriously individuated at the same time. You look at his eyes, yeah, it's it transcends gender, transcends him as an individual. At the same time, there he is as an individual, and you're marveling at that too. It's such a lovely thing. We get to do both at the same time. How long have you and Diane been married? Centuries. <laughs> uh, five five years going on six. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it was the relationship for us. It was um, yeah. we neither one of us was looking for another relationship. We were content to be alone. And she found my poetry online. She saw one of them was called Sacred Hymn. She said, I know the words of that song. She emailed me and said, I'd love to set this to music. I said, sure, but let's talk first. We had our first conversation, and it lasted a couple hours. It was remarkably easy. Uh, I loved talking with her and her with me, but it was nothing romantic. We were doing collaboration on poetry and music. I love writing. She loves music. She's a great singer. And after a while, three weeks later, um, I met her, flew down to where she was in California. I was in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we met. And a few days later, we were so connected, we could not be apart after that. Mm-hmm. And, it was, and we both had a sense of wanting to be with someone through whom we could serve in a higher good than we could mm-hmm. on our own. And that's what happened. We now work together. We do all our sessions together, all our trainings, mm-hmm. all our groups, mm-hmm. never tire of each other's company. And we're each other's dearest friend, intimate partner in all things. And it's easy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there's no getting away with anything. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm yeah. very grateful very to have happy, yeah. a partner like that who I can share this work with. So I don't have to go and say, "Here's what happened in this group." Yes. She's there, she sees it, <laughs> right? And right. and she brings a powerful feminine presence. So if someone has difficulty, who's had an abuse history with a, a, ma- a man, brother or father, I'm there. They're going to project some of that onto me. With Diane there, it makes it very safe. Mm-hmm. So I can do the body work, the, the ther- mm-hmm. psychotherapeutic work. She can do something that parallels that and complements it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so now our passion is doing um, intensives for couples, individuals, private intensives, and also doing these one-week groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we get to do it together. That's, and it's so that's lovely. Great. Yeah. yeah. That's great when you can share your passion that way with the person you're most passionately in love with. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I had to write Transformation Through Intimacy. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. Yeah, we're going to read that together. We, I, I've read we found, some of it to facts already. Many couples have found that they, this, this lovely is to, is to read it together and just read a chapter together and just kind of reflect on it and, and sink into what is in there. Also know that I, I'm um, going to revise it this fall. North Atlantic Books is going to publish it and have Random House distributed next spring, so I'm going to have to rework it. I have a very tough editor, thank God, so I've yeah. <laughs> improved a lot. So would you recommend waiting to get the book? No, no. <laughs> I'd say dive in. You're ready. Yeah, you can dive we'll get in. It. Yeah. And plus, you've both done a lot of spiritual work, so you're going to, you're going to be able to get it at a deeper level. Because mm-hmm. it was written with that pervading it, but it's not made overt. Because I had to address things like pornography and conflict right. and yeah. commitment. All those things that are part of a relationship you have to look at deeply. Mm-hmm. It's refreshing to um, uh, go deeply into those uh, 
um, considerations of relationship in a particular like sexual relationship mm-hmm. um, in a spiritual context. In other words, the context yeah. of, of being, holding all of these permutations of relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the key areas we address is, is, um, is so-called Tantra. We've seen so many people mm-hmm. uh, being hurt through that, misunderstanding it, using it to avoid pain, spiritualizing their sexuality. And because what we're teaching is the opposite. We're not teaching people techniques to get closer sexually. We're teaching them how to connect more deeply so that when they're deeply connected at the heart and through the body, sex happens organically and naturally. You don't need a tantric manual or some gimmickry. Well, aphrodisiac then is, is your love and your connection with each other. That's enough. You don't have to breathe in some special pattern or wiggle your tongues together. It's not, <laughs> it's not needed. And we've seen a lot of women who've actually had a sexual abuse in their girls who are now trying to be tantric goddesses. There's a lot of it. Like they're sexualizing these old wounds and, and, and acting things out that are psychological and emotional primarily and only secondarily sexual. So we're... We're pretty critical of the whole tantric movement. We, we're much more into just like deepen the connection and realize you can't separate sex from the rest of your relationship. Whatever you're doing sexually is going to reflect what you're doing the rest of the relationship. Probably the original masters of tantra would be pretty critical of the whole tantric movement too. I'm not sure that I think so. The contemporary tantric movement really reflects what they had in mind. Yeah. And it can pay lip service to what we're talking about, saying, well, use everything as part of the path, but it's, it often is interpreted as, as, okay, here's a chance to indulge. Yeah, do whatever the heck you want. And, and just screw the boundaries. Okay, if you see someone else who's attractive, well, go off and be with them because it's all love and what right. the hell, who cares? Yeah. It's, it doesn't honor the integrity of our boundaries. Mm-hmm. It presumes that we – I mean, yeah, when I see when people mature, it's not like they constrict themselves into monogamy. It's the natural choice. And I've, I've argued uh, a lot, you see it in the book a little bit, around the polyamory movements, big in some parts of Northern California, and I've never seen anyone make it work. That means sort of like free love, everybody's yeah, yeah. sleeping yeah, lots or having like, Or it would be like if, it was like, like if, say, you brought another couple in and you're with them all the time and it's uh-huh. no boundaries. I've said to people, it's, it's hard enough to be truly intimate with one person. Imagine a third person coming in and having given them just as much time and energy. Mm. You'd, be, you'd be used up pretty fast. Yeah. I, I often say that immature monogamy is one side of the coin, and the other side of the coin is polyamory or open relationship. Mm. Once you go past that, you have a possibility for mature monogamy, mm. which is not like immature monogamy makes us feel trapped. Uh, mature monogamy liberates us. Such a difference. See, we have so many jokes in our culture about men getting trapped when they enter monogamy. Like it's a trap. It's like the poor little sperm dissolves in the ovum and, the, and there's no escape and, and the man becomes sexless. He develops a beer gut. He's like the TV husband. He's very unattractive. And the single guy, the one who's not with a, uh, married, seems like he's, he's more of a stud. He still has sexual energy. We have that kind of stereotype in our culture. And yet, there's, a, there's something beyond that. And I think that's what we're called to do, is to go beyond that and, and to resist. I, I don't want to say that part. Just to go beyond it. Mm-hmm. I liked, uh, there was a, a, I think it was in, yeah, it was in the book on, on relationship, that freedom has no problem with chains. 
change. Chains. chains. Oh, chains. chains. Yes. Yeah. Put another way, freedom doesn't mind its chains. Yeah, thank you. That's it. That's, that's yeah. it. Mind its chains. And to me, real freedom is kind of paradoxical. Real freedom, to me, in part, means not needing to have a choice. Hmm. It's almost like necessity. The inherent necessity of a situation calls forth a response from us, and we don't. We don't even have to choose that. We just do it. That's that's what they mean. I think they say the sage does nothing and everything gets done. Hmm. There's a sense that the doing is happening, but there's no one clinging to that identity with that. And there's such freedom in, like when people have too many choices, often they feel less free. You put someone in front of a hundred different types of cornflakes, I mean, they're going, oh my God, what do I do? <laughs> Give them one choice, there's, there's just only one type, okay, it's simple. Right. Yeah. So true. Okay, well, I'm sure we can just sit here and continue to think of things to talk about and <laughs> entertaining ourselves. I'm not sure if we entertain our listeners much more than the two-hour point, so <laughs> we should probably conclude. Is, is there anything you'd like to say as a synopsis, uh, You'd like some thought you'd like to leave people with? Let me see. I think what we've been... Al- speaking about the whole time is our relationship to pain. When, when the painful or difficulty merges, turn toward it with compassion. And when you slip, look at yourself with compassion without giving, making excuses for yourself. We didn't talk about blind compassion. We can do that some other time. But I think it's so important to have compassion for ourselves, but still to hold ourselves to a certain standard. Then we, then we have our integrity. And if we have our integrity... Even that means we have to give up a lot of things. It feels so good to have that. That's right. That's what that's what character is. Yep. Yep. Turning turning toward discomfort, um, turning toward uh, difficulty, and facing it. Yep. And it, the essential courage that asks for really matures us. I've often said to men who wonder what they need to do in terms of personal work. I use the imagery of what I would call the warrior of intimacy or vulnerability, like to say, so it's a heroic journey. It's not like, okay, you have to turn toward your pain. The warrior in a man takes that as a fitting challenge. Here's this this difficult, scary thing. I'm going to face it. And I think the warrior in us, male or female, actually almost enjoys that process. So I'd say, the last thing I'd say is... is, uh, Cultivate intimacy with everything that you are, everything. Mm-hmm. Ask yourself what you don't want to be intimate with in yourself and then go toward it a little bit at a time and just see what's there. It's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very profound teaching. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this. Yeah, it's been great. So um, in summary, we've been talking with Robert Augustus Masters, um, who has written 11 books, and we've primarily been focusing on his book, Spiritual Bypassing, um, what spirituality, When Spirituality Disconnects Us from What Really Matters. Um, and also, it's worth reading the sub-subtitle, Learning to Recognize and Transform the Obstacles that Keep Us from Living Life Fully. Um, on, depending on how you are listening to this recording, you might be uh, listening on, you know, to an audio of it, but there's a website where this and all the other interviews that I do are archived. It's batgap.com, 
BAT, GAT, which is an acronym for Buddha at the gas pump. And uh, if you go there, you can subscribe to an email uh, so that each time a new interview is posted, you'll, you'll get an email notifying you of that. And there are also discussion groups, uh, usually with each, when I post each interview, people get into discussing in, in a chat group uh, about that interview, so you can participate in that if you like. Um, that about covers it. Uh, incidentally, Fax and Sharon were probably, I think, the second or third guests in this whole series. Like, you know, I've done 80 of them, they were the number two or three. Uh, so if you'd like to hear more about their story, um, you, you can look them up. It's, I think it says the Gilberts uh, uh, way down. <laughs> uh, on, the, on the right hand side, there's a list of all the people I've interviewed. Right. There's also a page of upcoming interviews on the site, and you can see who's scheduled. And um, if you'd like to recommend that I interview someone in particular, um, there's a form there you can fill out, or you can just send me an email. And I kind of pr try to prioritize people according to demand. Um, so thank you for listening and watching. Thank you, Robert, for your time. Um, this is we really enjoyed this. Mm -hmm. and, thank uh, you. Yeah. Thank you. All the best.